0: The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent holding short media, nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I am your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Cassandra Heb. Cassandra is just 25 years old and has been a licensed M1 M2 aircraft maintenance engineer for almost two years. She took aircraft maintenance at the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology in Calgary, then completing her apprenticeship in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. During her time at SAIT, she was the president of the Aviation Student Association, receiving the SAITSA Gold Award and the Dean's Choice Award. Since graduating, she has worked the majority of her career in the Canadian Arctic. Cassandra absolutely loves living in the Northwest Territories and currently has the honor of working on a beast of an aircraft, the 737-200. Ambitious and a real go-getter, Cassandra is passionate about promoting women in aviation. She is a Northern Ambassador for Elevate Aviation, an organization focused on promoting and encouraging women to choose careers in aviation. Most recently, she spoke at the Aircraft Maintenance Engineers Association of Canada's virtual conference on behalf of Elevate. Working on aircraft is a rewarding and exciting career for Cassandra, and she hopes to continue gaining knowledge and experience in the industry. We are so lucky to have her joining us today. Welcome, Cassandra. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Now, we'll just jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? Well, after
1: graduating from high school, I was 17 years old and I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I did what most young people are supposed to do or what I thought, and I applied for university. So I took a year of the Bachelor of Science at Mount Royal University in Calgary. But after my first year, I didn't really know what I was gonna do with a Bachelor of Science. I only really applied because I enjoyed science and that was pretty much it. But I didn't have like a goal in mind as to what I was gonna do after. And during my time at Mount Royal, I had actually met somebody who was taking aircraft maintenance at SAFE. And I had never heard of aircraft maintenance before, honestly. <laughs> I've always loved airplanes, though. So after I heard that that career existed, I kind of started researching it. I looked into it. Um, my uncle actually is a captain on the 737 at WestJet. So he hooked me up with a hangar tour in Edmonton, and I thought it was a pretty cool job. And I applied at SAIT, and yeah, the rest is history. But I really, in high school, I... I was not mechanically inclined. I took cosmetology and fashion. I did hair and nails. I did sewing, you know, cooking. I was never in shop class or never worked on vehicles. So it was kind of a weird thing for me to get into. A lot of people that knew me when I was younger were pretty surprised that I was taking aircraft maintenance. But yeah, I I pretty much stumbled upon it through meeting somebody that was in the program at State And once I actually applied and got in, like I just found that I really enjoyed it. Like I just absolutely loved it and I did really well. So it was I'm, I'm really lucky that I met that person.
0: <laughs> you never know when a chance meeting with someone might, in fact, completely change your life or change the trajectory of your career. And I'm very surprised knowing you uh, as an adult to think that you were not a technically uh, minded and inclined sort of teenager and uh, child uh, it seemed to me that you'd be the person that would have <laughs> been with Legos and all different sorts of uh, tech, like uh, I guess devices taking them apart to put them back together so I, I'm, I'm very surprised <laughs> no my sisters and I we played with Polly Pockets and Barbies growing up <laughs> there is nothing wrong with Polly Pockets and Barbies yes. <laughs> would you mind telling us a little bit more about the day-to-day of your role as a maintenance engineer?
1: Yeah. So to start off with, I work uh, two weeks on, two weeks off of night shift. So we start our shift at 4.30 PM and we work 12 hour nights. So when we show up at work at 4.30, we usually start off with a conversation with the crew chief and all of us together to talk about what's going on for the night. And they'll tell us about the scheduled maintenance that we have. There's usually... In between three and five airplanes at night, we've got a few ATRs and then the 737. So after that conversation, we'll usually go out and try to meet our airplane so we can Mm -hmm. discuss with the pilots if there's any defects with the airplane. Um, It's really important for us to have a good relationship with the pilots because that's like firsthand information of what's going on. It's one thing to have a pilot write a defect in the logbook that's maybe one or two sentences, but it's so much better for us to be able to talk to pilots and get your firsthand information. And if something is wrong with the airplane, then we can ask more questions because sometimes, you know, there's one or two sentences in the logbook, but we have a lot more questions that, you know, if, if something's going on, we want to know what phase of flight it's in, what was the airspeed, like it, it, just things that maybe you wouldn't think of to write in the logbook. We want to know those things. So it's really important for us to talk to the pilots once they get back from their flight. Um, so, yeah, we'll talk to the pilots and then we'll come back to the hangar, rearrange our airplanes, put a few in the in the hangar, maybe one or two outside. So I am working outside maybe like 80 percent of the time. Um, so I have to dress warm because it is minus 40 or minus 50 up here in Yellowknife with the wind chill sometimes. So, uh, Canadian North has a really great uniform policy and allowance. Um, they give us everything that we need to do our job, whether we're in the hangar or outside in minus 50. So it's great. Um, but yeah, we've got unscheduled maintenance and scheduled maintenance. So the scheduled maintenance we have is kind of divided into three different types. It's calendar days, cycles, which is takeoffs and landings or um, hours. So depending, you know, we could have a daily inspection every day on the airplane that's tracked by hours and calendar days. Or we could have a bigger inspection like fuel nozzles. Maybe you replace those every 500 hours or an engine change or hydraulic pump replacement. You know, there's just so many different types of scheduled maintenance. But Every night is different. And that is why I really enjoy it. One night I could be, you know, just uh, replacing fuel nozzles. And then the next night I could be uh, lubricating landing gear. So it's different every night. And that's why I really enjoy the job.
0: So you attended the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology for your program. Can you speak a little bit more about what your program was like and how you became a maintenance engineer afterwards?
1: So my program at SAIT was two years, and I, at the end of it, I had a, a college diploma. But my program is Transport Canada approved. So at the end of the program, I got 18 months accreditation towards my aircraft maintenance engineer license application. Um, and when I was at SAIT, it was a variety of lecture classes and then labs. So you would learn all the theory, and then you would go and do a lab for the course. So there was piston engines, turbine engines, structures, avionics. So there was labs where we took apart an engine and put it back together. I got to build an airfoil, doing structures. Um, and you have to get 70% in every course that you take at SAIT, um in order to get that 18 months accreditation towards your AME license. So once you have that, that two-year diploma, then you want to get an apprenticeship. And that's where, for me, I went to Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. I couldn't find a job in Calgary. So I just went to where the work was. And it actually took me to a really beautiful small town up north. And so for an apprenticeship, you you have to do a two and a half year apprenticeship. So in total, you need 48 months of an apprenticeship through Transport Canada. And 18 months was accreditation that I had from taking that diploma at SAIT. So during my apprenticeship, I had two logbooks. One was M1 and one was M2. So small and large aircraft, we'll just say. And you need 70% of those logbooks filled out and there's tasks in there. So replacing a light bulb is in there, replacing an aileron. You need 70% of each ATA. So there's a a lot of different tasks. I think over 200 tasks in a logbook and you just need 70% of what is applicable to the airplane that you're working on. So for me, that was the Jetstream 31 and the Jetstream 32. So after you have your 70% of your logbook filled out and you have your two and a half years apprenticeship time completed, you can apply to Transport Canada to write your AME exam. So I applied. Um, it was in Yellowknife. I applied for my AME license. And I had to write the exam. And it, there's one exam. It's the Canadian Aviation Regulations, so the CARS. And it's a 50-question multiple-choice exam that you have to get 70% down. And if you don't pass the first time, then you get 30 days. You have to wait 30 days, and then you can write a second time. If you fail the second time, you have to wait 6 months to write it again. So it's pretty nerve-wracking. <laughs> I, I over-prepared, which is what I do with everything. So I actually got 96% on it. <laughs> And the Transport Canada inspector up here in Yellowknife told me that she had never seen somebody get such a high mark. That was the highest mark that she had ever seen in Yellowknife. So I was pretty excited about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, after my four years of apprenticeship and my diploma, I got my license in March of 2019.
0: Yes. So you should be very proud of yourself because everything I hear about the CARS exam is that it's a challenging one. And so to have a 96%, I mean, that's that says something about you. So you should be very, very proud of yourself. Uh, going back to the idea of an M1 versus an M2 aircraft, as you sort of divided them up by sort of smaller planes and bigger aircraft. What are some of the differences when working on an M1 aircraft versus an M2 aircraft?
1: So I would say the major difference between the aircraft once you have your AME license is the way that you sign off the airplanes. So when you're working for a company as an engineer, they can give you ACA, which is Aircraft Certification Authority, and that allows you to release an airplane into service. That's signing the maintenance release. So you guys, as pilots, you see at the bottom of the logbook, an AME will sign off the maintenance release certifying the work that was just done on the airplane. Regardless of what work was done, there's always going to be a maintenance release at the bottom of the logbook page. Um, So the main difference is that M1 aircraft... Once you have your AME license, an AMO can just give you ACA. They'll just give you an in-house exam on that type of airplane, and then you will get your ACA. Whereas with M2 aircraft, so transport category aircraft, you have to have a Transport Canada approved type course on that type of aircraft. So that's, you know, those type courses go from, you know, four to six weeks long. And you're learning all the specifics about the airplane. You're going through every single chapter of of the systems. You're learning about the engines. You're learning about the gear, the electrical portion. You spend a lot of time learning the details of the airplane. And so I actually have my ATR type course as well as my RJ type course. Um, I'm working on the 737 right now, so I don't have that type course, but I am hoping to get it at some point in the future. Um, but until then, you know, I have my ATR and my RJ and, and I love working on the airplane. Like to me, I'm not signing off the airplane, but I, I love working on it. It's such a cool airplane to work on. I had never worked on such a large airplane before starting this job at Canadian North. So it was pretty interesting to, to work on such a large cool airplane.
0: <laughs> I know from a piloting perspective, I always think of the 737-200s as just these absolutely just like the coolest planes and the fact that they have uh, are so capable of being able to do a lot of incredible things related to operations, especially with gravel runways and the post uh, sort of retrofit gravel kits. Uh, yeah, the 737-200, I would, I would be happy just to be working on it.
1: Exactly. It is such it is such a cool airplane. And I remember when I started at Canadian North because I'm so used to working on the turboprops and plugging in Tannis heaters on the engines at night because, you know, these airplanes are sitting outside in minus 40, minus 50. And this airplane does not have Tannis installed. And you can let that plane sit outside in minus 40 or minus 50. And those engines will start in the morning. And I just was blown away by that. I remember asking my coworker, uh, where's the Tannis? And he said, there isn't any on this.
0: <laughs> so being an aircraft maintenance engineer can be such a varied role. But one thing that all aviation jobs have in common is the idea and the discussion surrounding human factors. How do human factors impact the approach maintenance engineers take to their role? And how do the discussions around human factors differ from a pilot perspective to a maintenance engineer perspective?
1: Um, human factors definitely has a huge influence on the way that we do our job. Whether I'm consciously thinking about the human factors or not while I'm working, I mean, I'm always thinking about it. And it's just things that now to me are just second nature. But obviously, these are things that I learned. Everyone's taken human factors courses. If you are in the aviation industry, you've definitely heard of human factors. Um but we, for maintenance, we have something called the dirty dozen. <laughs> so it's, it's this dozen different types of ways that we can make mistakes and that we are aware of. And these 12 dirty dozens, they have safety nets. So for example, um, distractions, like people get distracted, you know, or maybe I'll, I'll be doing a job and then I need to, it's a long job. Maybe it would take me five or six hours and I need to eat supper in that five or six hours. So one thing for me that I do is if I'm in the middle of a job, but I'm going to go have supper is when I come back, I'll go to the checklist and go three steps back from what I was doing. We have checklists for everything as well. That's one thing, you know, another way human factors, it's a safety net. Like we have checklists for everything. We've got, work cards made by canadian north that are maintenance manual references but they actually add more to it like it's it's an even more of a safety net that canadian north has um there's pressure that's another one of the dirty dozens and that's one, you know, where the airplane is broken. Maybe it comes back and there's a few defects in the logbook plus scheduled maintenance. And there's, you know, only so many AMEs on staff that night. So there's a pressure of getting the airplane serviceable. And so for that, you know, communication is a, is a really good safety net and putting safety first, obviously. So we will not cut corners just to get the airplane serviceable there's been plenty of nights where at 2am or 3am we'll be making calls to maintenance control and saying like, Hey, this airplane is not going to be serviceable in the morning. Like we're, we're at the point that we have to, you know, wait for parts or wait for tooling or wait for a repair. Um, maybe we need to contact Boeing and we're waiting for their response. Like, but we have no problem just calling maintenance control and telling everyone, hey, we're sorry, Like, we're trying our best here. And, you know, we're not going to get penalized for it because everybody's number one concern is safety. That's all everybody cares about, like making sure the airplane is serviceable and airworthy.
0: What is your favorite or most rewarding aspect of your role?
1: Honestly, my favorite part about my job, I think, is is just learning every day. And I've realized, you know, when I was an apprentice and kind of when I first got my license, I put a pressure on myself of, OK, now I'm an engineer. That means I have to know everything. And shortly after that, I realized, Nobody knows everything. <laughs> Not even somebody who's been an engineer for 20 or 30 years. You don't know everything. And that's the thing about my job is that you're constantly learning. And that's what I really love about it is that every day I'm learning something new. Usually during the day, I'll learn a whole lot of new stuff in one day, but that's, yeah, one of my favorite things about the job. Um, also just being able to replace something go to see something go from unserviceable to troubleshooting or just to replacing the component and then having it, it fixed. Like it's, it's just a nice feeling. Like on my last shift at work, I replaced the, uh, air stair motor, For the uh, passenger stairs on the 737 and we had been having some issues with it for a little while so once we finally figured out okay it's this motor that needs to be replaced and i got to replace it and and i replaced it and i did everything and and you know leak checks and function checks serviceable and it was just nice to you know something simple like that it's like i fixed that it was me (laughs) and it was just a good
0: feeling What advice would you give for someone looking to work as a maintenance engineer?
1: Oh, I would say the first thing and the most important thing for me is that wear knee pads. Wear knee pads from day one of your job. (laughs) Not like me, because I think I started wearing knee pads one year after I started this career. And my knees are not well. And I'm 25 years old. (laughs) So, I mean, for me, I would say safety, like your own safety, where the PPE that the company provides for you, because all companies are legally required to to um, supply the proper PPE to do our jobs. And, you know, there is a lot of like stigma of like some maybe of like the older generation of engineers where like they didn't have all the necessary PPE back when they started doing this job 20 or 30 years ago. So maybe, you know, some people don't want to wear certain things like respirators or knee pads or gloves or whatever. And to me, because my body is the most important thing, like I don't want to damage it at work. And it seems like every chemical that I work with, you know, reading the MSDS for it, it's all harmful. Everything is harmful. So I like go probably overboard when it comes to PPE. But I just think it's so important. Like you, you have to take care of your body from day one. And I mean, like I said, my knees are not so great. And I know it's from not wearing knee pads during my first year of this job uh, of my career. I mean, not this specific job. I have a little kneeling pad that I bought from Canadian Tire. It's like a gardening pad that's pink and I carry it around the hanger with me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a big one is like the safety of your own body. My second piece of advice would be that you need to be able to take responsibility for your actions. This is not a job that you can try to hide a mistake. If you make a mistake, you have to be able to own up for it because this job, uh, there's lives on the line. You have to be able to come forward and say that you have made a mistake because I mean, things When you think of worst possible scenario, it involves people dying. And I just take it so seriously. Like, I take my job very seriously. And I would say if you're thinking about becoming an engineer, you need to have that sort of mindset because you can't take this job lightly. I love my job and like, you know, we have fun in the hangar, my coworkers and I, we can joke around and everything, but we all have safety in mind at the end of the day. The most important thing is safety and, and making sure we're doing our jobs responsibly and properly and not cutting corners. And, and I just, yeah, you have to have that sort of mindset if you want to be an AME.
0: Over the last few years in aviation, we've seen exponential growth and high turnover rates as many industry members approach retirement age. How do you see young people in the industry changing the face and the makeup of the industry?
1: I think that the most important change that we're going to make is that we are going to encourage our companies to become more inclusive and diverse. And I do know that companies have come a long way, like within the last five or 10 years, I've been in the industry now for five years, and they definitely have. But I am pretty sure and hopeful that it's just going to keep getting better and better, the more years that pass. I just think like, once we get into these more important roles, these management roles, then we'll be able to persuade and encourage more inclusive and diverse work environments. So I think, you know, as the years progress, so then hopefully we can have young, young women just know that they can become an engineer or a pilot and not have to second guess themselves.
0: A longstanding tradition in Canadian aviation is to begin your career in the North. How has living and working in the Northwest Territories changed your life?
1: So like I said previously, um, I started my career in the North because I couldn't find a job in Calgary when I graduated from State, And I was somebody who said that I was going to, you know, work at WestJet and live in Calgary. And that's, that's what I thought that I wanted to do after I graduated from State. But because there was no jobs in Calgary and I had gotten this um, job in Fort Smith, I went up there and I absolutely fell in love with the north. Like, it's such an amazing place to live. It's so beautiful. You get to see the northern lights. And I really love the people mostly because everybody's just so welcoming. Everybody's kind of in the same boat up here. You know, a lot of people moved up here for work. So it's people like me where they don't have their families up here, but, but they're just starting their career out and, and everybody is just so friendly. So I have made like so many lifelong friends living in Fort Smith. And now I've been in Yellowknife for almost three years and I just absolutely love it. Um, I went ice fishing just today and caught my first trout. So that was very exciting for me. Um, But yeah, there's always fun stuff to do like skidooing or ice fishing, quadding. I just started cross country skiing this year, so that was pretty fun. And in the summertime, I have a trailer up here, so I spent, I spent so many weeks camping. I was even camping while I was working on my shift. I would work night shift and then I would go to the campsite and (laughs) go sleep, you know, during my sleep, which is during the day, I would then I would get up at noon and make my breakfast at my campsite and just hang out there and then go to work that night at 430. Like, it was, it it was so much fun. I just I love all the different activities you can do. You kind of have to be a social person to live up here. Like, that's what I've noticed mostly is that the people that love living up here are social and love the outdoors. And, and I would say that that's who I am. So I, I absolutely love it.
0: What is your ultimate aviation career goal?
1: I would like to say that I would like to keep moving up in my career in the maintenance department. So right now I'm currently an AME on the hangar floor, but I would like to keep moving forward in the career, hopefully at one point become a crew chief, so a supervisor on the floor, and then maybe move into one of the higher management roles like production manager or uh, director of maintenance. I just really wanna be in a position where I can make a difference.
0: What role do you feel mentorship has had in your career so far?
1: Um, I think that mentorship is an excellent tool that more people should take advantage of. And I absolutely love being the Northern Ambassador for Elevate Aviation. I was introduced to them in 2019 when they came up to Yellowknife for the cross-country tour. And that's how I met Kendra, who's the founder of Elevate. And it was like I was instantly welcomed into this group of women that were so amazing and inspiring. And I had never felt a sense of like belonging like that before. Like I was just instantly part of this group of women. And it was such a great feeling. And to be able to have conversations about things that have gone on and you know in my career so far and have women who actually understand and know like some of the situations that i had found myself in um i wish that i knew about elevate from the day that i started my apprenticeship because it just would have been so great to have a female ame as a mentor just because when i was at a previous job i had dealt with some harassment and and i didn't really know what to do and didn't really talk about it with with anyone just because people were telling me that I needed to have thicker skin and, you know, to just let things go. So that's what I tried to do. But I, I really truly believe that if I had a female AME as a mentor that, you know, I would have been able to open up and like talk to her and discuss and, and kind of work through what had been going on at my previous job. Um, so yeah, I'm all for mentorship and I just think it's such a great thing that, that everybody should do, regardless of if you're a woman or a man. It's just nice to have a mentor, somebody that you can talk to that's in a position, whether it's a position that you could see yourself in in the future or just another, you know, whether it be an AME or an apprentice or, you know, a, a maintenance manager for me, like for you, it could be a pilot or the chief pilot or, it's just nice to be able to have a discussion with somebody about about the career and just talk about things that might go on during the day that, that you don't want to just bring up while you're at work, but things that you might think of and think, well, maybe I want to like talk about that situation with somebody, not in a way that's gossiping, but just to have somebody that maybe has been in a situation like that before. So I really I love the idea of mentorship and and I love being a part of Elevate. Like it's such a, a great organization to be a part of. Who is someone in aviation you admire and why? I would say her name is Bridget Nielsen. And it's funny, she's somebody that I met, I would say, five or six years ago at a family reunion. She is my cousin's friend. And she is the Director of Maintenance at a company in Calgary. And so she's a Director of Maintenance. And I mean, I don't really know her personally very well. Like I have her on my social media. And I mean, but I just can't believe that she is a Director of Maintenance. She's the one and only woman that I've ever heard of that's in that role. And I just think that's so amazing. She has kids and she's a Director of Maintenance. Like That is inspiring. I mean... I. Every when I hear director maintenance, I think of like a man like, you know, that's just that's just what I think. So to have her be in that role, I just think it's so
0: inspiring. Now, please share with me a favorite aviation memory or highlight from any point in your career. In
1: 2019, I had the opportunity to go on a 27 day charter to Nunavut and the charter was going to every community in none of it. So I have been to Greece fjord, I've been to uh Cambridge Bay, Resolute Bay, Cape Dorset, I've been to uh Iqaluit, Rankin Inlet, just so many communities and it was amazing. I got to fly around with the airplane and do the scheduled and unscheduled maintenance and and I got to see parts of Canada that I would say, you know, not a lot of people would even know of these communities that I got the opportunity to go to. And I got the opportunity to see the way that the Indigenous people live in those communities. And I was welcomed into homes where somebody, someone that was working at a hotel, invited the flight crew and, and myself into her home because her dad and uncle had just shot a caribou. And so she had welcomed us into her home and we got to see this caribou that had just been shot. And, and they offered us narwhal. Never had that before. I had seen a narwhal in the water. That's another cool thing. Um, Seeing the glaciers up north, like just being in all these northern areas of Canada where not a lot of people get the opportunity to go. Um, I've been to Alert, which is the most northern habited places in the place in the world. I believe it's 83 degrees north. Um I've been to Eureka, which is also, I believe, eighty degrees north or you know, something like that. Pretty much the North Pole. And it was just it's amazing. I love working in the Canadian Arctic and I just would love to promote and encourage people, you know, after COVID is all over and the borders are opened up, take a trip up north. Come to one of the territories because they're amazing. And I just think that more people need to actually come and see for themselves because They're just, all of these places are so, so cool. And I'm just so happy that I got the
0: opportunity to go to them. I know personally, I'm really looking forward to when it is uh, appropriate for me to travel and visit. Because I cannot wait to come visit you in Northern Canada and get to have the full Northern experience through you. Oh yeah, I'm going to take you ice fishing. (laughs) So before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? On Instagram at Cass underscore Hep. And I will be sure to have that linked in the episode description for our listeners. Cassandra Hep, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Laura. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle's. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.